I would direct your attention to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the word of our Lord. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together again to hear your word. Father, We pray for your spirit to come and to be our teacher, to instruct us in the ways of righteousness, Lord, to build us up in our most holy faith. Father, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes to your truth. Lord, let this word that we hear, let it be the means by which you put away sin from us. Lord, the means by which you strengthen us as a body. We pray for your blessing now, and we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is Paul's exhortation to us to walk worthy of our vocation or calling as believers. And as we continue to consider this subject of the worthy walk, we find ourselves in an extended examination of unity. To be endeavoring or to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit is the fourth exhortation the Apostle gives on this broad topic of walking worthy of our calling. We are to understand our calling, and we are to cultivate godly character. We are to forbear and tolerate and put up with each other, put up with each other, difficult Christians. And then when we have done these things well, we will see that what God calls us to and why why he calls us to these things is so that we will be diligent or make every effort to keep or preserve a unified church. And this keeping of the unity of the church is where we find ourselves as we look at these verses again today. Now, we've taken our time to explore unity not only in what it says in this, this particular passage, but what the rest of the New Testament says about the unity of the people of God. To do this, we've been answering some questions. The first question that we answered is, what is the unity of the Spirit? What is this unity that Paul is describing? And we've seen that the unity of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit in all of God's people, to give us the same mind, 
and the same master and the same mission. The second question is, how do we keep the unity of the Spirit? What are the practical things that we can do to make this a reality in our midst? And we saw last time that we are to keep the unity of the Spirit with a Christ-centered focus and with diligence, giving great attention to this command because of how significant this is to Christ. Now this leads us to the third question in our study on the unity of the Spirit. And that question is, what are the blessings that God promises to a church that seeks to preserve unity? What are the things that God will do among us? How will he manifest his blessings among us when we are obedient to this command? And one of the amazing things about Scripture and about God is that God never commands us to do anything except with the express intent to bless us. All of God's commands in Scripture are there not to control us or to hold us under the thumb of some impersonal deity. All of God's commands are given with the purpose of blessing us. And we see that if if we look, for example, at the exodus of Israel from Egypt, when they came out of Egypt and they were given the law, the law was given, and attached to that, if they were obedient, was a long list of ways that God would bless them for their obedience. And so we find this principle in the Bible, that God's commands are given so that when people obey them, they are blessed by God. And the command to preserve unity of the Spirit is no different. It is a difficult task, but it's worthwhile because of the blessings that God promises as we seek to be obedient. So let us consider three blessings that come to a church that keeps or preserves the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first one is joy. The first blessing that we can expect from God when we seek to keep the unity that the Spirit creates among us is joy. When everybody in the church is submitting himself to the authority of the Word of God, And when we are serving the same master together and pursuing the same mission, proclaiming the word of God, an environment begins to form in the church of incredible spiritual joy. There is a palpable excitement that can be seen and felt when the church gathers for praise and for worship and for fellowship if the people of God are unified. You see, people that genuinely want to be together who find delight in their mutual fellowship. They are excited to be with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. But the opposite occurs when there is no unity. You have people who are not pulling in the same direction, people who are indulging in divisiveness, or who are at odds with other believers in the church. When that happens, the energy energy that is present in the gathering of God's people dissipates. It evaporates. It disappears. People come to gather for worship and fellowship out of a feeling of obligation rather than a delight. They're there because they have to be, not because anyone wants to be there. It is an incredibly difficult environment when there is no unity. There's always a sense of friction and uneasiness.
Disunity becomes like a wet blanket on top of all things that God may be doing in the midst of his people. And this disunity destroys joy in the church. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. In Psalm 133, we have a graphic illustration of the kind of joy that God wants us to have and the kind of joy that comes when we are a unified people. Psalm 133. It's a short psalm, just three verses. But in Psalm 33, verse 1, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When we are together in unity as the people of God, the psalmist says that is good, that is pleasant when we do not have divisions among us. And when we are endeavoring, when we are diligently seeking to keep the unity of the Spirit, Now, obviously, it is good because it's in in accordance with God's will. God commands it. But the psalmist is going to do something different than that here. He's not just saying that it's objectively good to dwell together in unity. He's saying that it's subjectively good. It's good in the sense that we experience the goodness of it. It is better for us. It is more enjoyable for us to have unity. It brings us godly pleasure to have unity. When we have disunity, it causes pain and discomfort. But unity makes the church a pleasant assembly, a desirable group of believers in which the faithful people of God want to be. Have you ever had the experience of being at someone's house, maybe someone you had over for dinner, and at some point during the visit, the husband and the wife getting into, get into an argument right in front of you. Now this gets really awkward and you begin to think, maybe it's time for us to go home so that you can sort this out. I, we don't want to be here while you two are fighting over this situation. And it's really no different for people in the church. When people come into the church, they can sense that there is a tension. They can sense that there are broken relationships. They see that people are bitter and that people are angry. And it's very awkward to be a part of a group like that. It's very uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It's not good. If you go to a church and it looks like nobody gets along and everybody has a chip on their shoulder and everyone is bitter and you're visiting there and you're probably thinking to yourself within a few minutes, I don't think I'm coming back here. I don't care how good the preaching is or how good the worship is. This is just too uncomfortable to be in this environment. David says that what is good, what is pleasant, is when we have unity among us. That is what produces joy. That is what makes it enjoyable to be together. And how enjoyable is it? Well, look at verse 2 in Psalm 133. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. This is a wonderful analogy that unfortunately makes almost no sense to 21st century Christians or people in general. 
But this was a graphic image for the Israelites because they saw modeled in this every time a new high priest came to office. They would anoint him with ointment or with oil. And the oil would flow down and cover him. And if you know the history of Israel, you know that most of the time Israel was under ungodly leadership. And so this was not always the most pleasant thing throughout their history because their leaders were often in rebellion against God. So David goes back to the very first high priest in the Old Covenant, Aaron, and he reminds the people of God one of the greatest works that God had ever done in the history of Israel and in the history of the world was to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt. When Aaron was anointed priest, these were the days when the nation of Israel was in its infancy and the people were dwelling around the the visible presence of God. And all the people, as they left Egypt, and they, wa- and they watched God deliver them. They sang with one voice and they rejoiced together and they danced and they celebrated the goodness of the glory of God. And they were unified as they came out of Egypt and recognized that Yahweh had delivered them. In Exodus chapter 40, after Moses had anointed Aaron and he had constructed the tabernacle, when all of those things happen, the glory of God fills the tabernacle among the people so glorious that Moses himself was not able to enter the tabernacle. The people were united around the glory of God, and they could not help but to worship the true and the living God. And even in the midst of the awesomeness of the sight, there was joy amongst the people of Israel because they knew that God had delivered them and that Yahweh was dwelling among them. And the point that David is making in Psalm 133 is he is reminding Israel of Aaron's anointing as priest in Exodus 40. He's reminding them that it is joyful when we dwell in unity, just like we rejoiced when God delivered us from slavery, when God delivered us from Egypt. Now for us in the New Covenant, we might think of this as the joy when we were born again. The joy that we had the moment we realized that God had delivered us from sin. When God saved you from His wrath. God saved me and you and gave us eternal life and forgave us and gave us the righteousness of Christ. He put us into the body of Christ. And now as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, you think that as a new believer, where you came from and what you deserve, and you think, I can't believe that I get to use my gifts to serve God's people. I get to be in fellowship with the people of God. I get to be a member of the church because of God's grace toward me. And the joy that you had in those early days of being saved and recognizing how God pulled you out of destruction... How marvelous that is and what joy it brings. But sadly, what often happens in the church, the longer we are together, the more the joy fades. We begin to see the flaws in our brothers and sisters, don't we? We go from, I can't believe I get to be a part of this group, 
to be, I can't believe I have to be a part of this group. The joy is replaced with thoughts of how imperfect everybody around us is and how sinful. How people around us do things that hurt us and challenge us. And the joy and the wonder of being saved and being part of the church is is replaced by being heard and becoming bitter and getting frustrated and disillusioned. But in Psalm 133, we are reminded that there is a benefit to working through this difficulty and preserving the unity of the Spirit and staying united. There is a benefit to preserving with diligence, with all of your effort, the unity of the Spirit. And that is, when we have that unity, it is just like the joy of being saved is felt all over again. How we should pursue that. One way that we are strengthened by the Spirit of God to keep unity is by God reminding us of what it was like when we were redeemed, when we were saved, and how we marveled at the grace of God to us. How often we need to think of ourselves when we are frustrated with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to think back to the days when we were saved, when we were pulled out of our sin, when we were redeemed and delivered from the bondage of sin. We should think, I can't believe I get to serve with these people. I can't believe that I get to have fellowship with these people and be part of the body of Christ. That should be the attitude that's produced. How undeserving I am of this miracle that God has done in my life. And we seek that unity We are reminded again and again as we come together how amazing it is that we are in the body of Christ and the joy that this unity produces in our lives. Second, when we keep or preserve the unity of the Spirit, we also receive the blessing of God's provision in our lives. Turn over to the book of Acts and look at chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 32. Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 reads, And the multitude of them that had believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Here we have the early church, and they're enjoying unparalleled unity. They live together, Luke says, in one heart and in one soul. They were so unified in heart and soul that they did not even think of their property as belonging to themselves. 
What they had belonged to the Lord, and it was to be used to to benefit the people of God. And if someone needed something in the church, and someone else in the church had the ability to meet that need, the, the need was met. In verse 34, it, in, it indicates that they actually eliminated poverty in the church. There was not a single needy person in the church. Poverty was gone from the church in Jerusalem. And anyone who was destitute was given what they needed because of the unity that brought about generosity in the body of Christ. We give generously out of the sense of unity because we care for the people of God. In fact, when the church is unified as we are called to live, we are able to take care of those within the church. And what a powerful testimony it is when no one in the church has to go hungry, that nobody in the church has to be evicted because somebody is going to make sure that needs are met. The world's out there trying to fix all all kinds of social problems, how to eliminate poverty, how to feed the hungry, how to get water to the thirsty. And these are real problems that exist in the world, but the world never manages to get it right. And what a shining example we can be to the world that these types of problems can be solved when we solve them God's way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we must recognize that our greatest needs are not physical needs. The greatest provisions we need have nothing to do with our earthly life. Our spiritual needs are far more significant than our physical needs. If we go back to Psalm 133, we see that what is really intended here, ultimately, is not that our physical needs will be met, although God does meet those as long as he plans to keep us living on earth. But our spiritual needs are what need to be met. Look back at verse 3 in Psalm 133. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Mount Hermon was a a mountain with peaks that reached over 9,000 feet high. And the peaks were covered with snow due to the air temperature at that height and their altitude. And when you went down the peaks, the, the water would begin to melt from the snow. And it would run down the mountain. And that water was a source of provision for the people of Israel. They used it for drinking water. They used it to water their crops. They used it to water their livestock. It was a lifeline that the nation of Israel had to make sure that they could continue to exist and to live and to prosper. And what David is saying is that when we preserve unity, when we dwell together as brothers and sisters in unity, it provides what we need for life. We are sustained by our unity. But we know that King David has more in mind here than just watering the grass or making sure that livestock have enough water or that there is enough drinking water for the people because he says, this is the blessing, even life forevermore, eternal life, the great blessing that comes to us through the unity of the people of God is the provision for our spiritual life, 
for that life never ends. At some point, no matter how much unity we have, we cannot muster enough unity to keep everybody on earth alive forever, nor would we want to. There's an appropriate point at which we all want to exit, which we want to leave and be with the Lord. You get to a certain age and to a certain level of health and it declines. There's a sense in which God bringing an end to physical life in a fallen world is a blessing for the people of God. That we are not able to eat from the tree and live forever in this condition. And we can help meet each other's needs up to a point, physical needs up to a point, but there's a point at which the physical needs become irrelevant and all that matter are your spiritual needs. And it's our relationships with one another in unity in the body of Christ that make sure that if there is a physical need, that somebody will be able to meet it. But our spiritual needs will be met so that we will enjoy eternal life together as the people of God. Now, sometimes people say that they can live the Christian life just fine without the church. They can go off and try to follow Christ alone in isolation from the church. They think that they can sustain their spiritual life by listening to podcasts and reading books and watching YouTube videos and all of those type of things. But the hard reality is no one can sustain spiritual life independently who is willfully rejecting coming together with the body of Christ. Now, there are situations where you may not be able to come together with the body of Christ. We think of the Apostle John. He was exiled. He may have been the only Christian on that island he was on. He was a church of one. There was no one to come together with. Maybe you're thrown into prison and you're the only believer in the prison and there's no church for you to come together with. I believe God takes care of his people with his special, unique provision that he does not give us normally when we are able to gather as the body of Christ. But the normal Christian provision comes from the unity that we have as the people of God. We need one another. We need fellowship. We need teaching. We need to worship. We need to pray together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10 say this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he, for he hath not another to help him up. In verse 10, when it says, woe to him that is alone when he falleth. Disaster comes to the one who falls when he's in isolation. When we are struggling, when we stumble into sin, when temptation is coming at us full board, if we are alone, we are in trouble. Our spiritual provision often comes through our brothers and sisters in Christ who lift us up when we fall down, who can strengthen us when we are weak, who can encourage us when we are downcast, who can help us get out of a mess when we find ourselves stuck in some place that we shouldn't be. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 puts it like this. Through desire, a man having separated himself seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. 
Another way that you could render that is, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. If you want to be a fool, isolate yourself. If you want to argue with God's wisdom, separate yourself from other Christians. None of us wants to be a fool. None of us, if we're reasonable, want to argue with God. Do you think that you know more than he does? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be foolish. Don't isolate yourself. Don't argue with the wisdom of God. It is in the company of the body of Christ and the fellowship of other believers that you find spiritual nourishment and provision and health. This is one of the reasons that what has happened over the past three years, especially in this country, has been so detrimental to so many churches. So many isolated from the body for so long, under the guise of saving lives and keeping safe. In the beginning, when we didn't know the nature of the sickness, you can't blame churches for exercising reasonable caution. But over the days and weeks, when it became apparent to any thinking person that the reaction to the illness was overhyped and being fashioned for political ends, many churches continued not to meet. And not just the liberal churches, but many conservative and otherwise biblically sound congregations did not meet in person for months and months. And some even criticized believers that continued to meet. We are still living in the immediate wake of this debacle. And it is hard to gauge how many brothers and sisters it affected and how severely it touched them. But you can be assured that we will be dealing with the wreckage for years to come. Much work will need to be done among Christians to restore the broken fellowship and to restore the unity that is weakened, that was weakened by the people of God isolating themselves instead of obeying God's command to not forsake the gathering of the saints. There is no wisdom in cutting yourself off from spiritual nourishment and provision by isolating and separating from the body of Christ. Such spiritual foolishness forfeits the blessings of unity. A third blessing that comes from preserving unity is intimacy with God. Now, this one flies in the face of how many people think about the relationship with God. Many think that intimacy with God is something that's just between God and them. Other people are not involved. It is their personal, private relationship with God, and it doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. And they do not understand that there is a link to your intimacy with God and your unity with the people of God. Maybe you even think that intimacy with God is what happens at home in your prayer closet. And if I'm in the church and I'm not having the same level of fellowship with God, I'm there to fellowship with other people and serve, but my intimacy with God is something I do alone. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3.
First Peter chapter 3, and look at verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one on another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Now, Peter here has been talking about the different relationships that we have with people in the world. And he says here in verse 8, finally, or you could say to sum up, as I bring all these relationships to a close, let me just gather it all under one heading for you and for the church. All of you believers, be of one mind. The word that Peter uses here is used this one time in the New Testament. And it, it, it literally means be of the same mind or think the same kind of things. This is a call that the Apostle Peter gives to unity. And he lists several items that demonstrate our unity. When we are pitiful or sympathetic, when we love one another with a brotherly love, when we have compassion for each other, when we are courteous, which means to be humble in spirit, when we bless those who hurt or do evil to us. And then he quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, and explains the blessing we inherit when we live a godly life, as he describes here. In verse 12, here is the blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them who do evil. If we live harmoniously, if we all have one mind, if we're pursuing unity, if we're loving our brothers and sisters as God calls us to do in this passage, Peter says the Lord's eyes will be upon us. In other words, he will be watching over us. He will be caring for us. He will be leading us. He will be guiding us. He will be attentive to us with fatherly love and care, and his ears will be open to our prayers and attentive to our prayers. God will listen to us when we pray. God will bring us into intimate relationship with himself. But the Lord is opposed to those who do evil. He sets his face against those who do evil. And Doing evil in this context, he's not talking about murderers or rapists or thieves or so many of the heinous things that go on in the world. In the context here, the people that are doing evil are those who are not preserving unity, those who are not showing compassion, those who are not loving their brothers. And he says if you want to have an intimate relationship with the Lord, if you want God to hear your prayers if you want to have God to have his eyes on you and to be watching out for you, be of one mind. Keep the unity of the church. Intimacy with God is connected to and cannot be severed from your relationship to other believers. Even when people mistreat you, Peter says, when they do evil to you, 
when they rail against you or insult you. Bless them instead. Isn't it amazing that in verse 9, Peter just assumes that people in the church are going to do evil to you. There are people in the church that are going to insult you. It doesn't say that they do it intentionally. Maybe they do or maybe they don't. But when it happens, he says, don't take revenge. Forgive them. Bless them. Recognize that you are called for a blessing. And what is that blessing? It's intimacy with God. If you want to be intimate with God, be like God. Forgive those who wrong you. Have compassion. Seek to preserve unity. People who think that they can be close to God, but in disunity with the people of God, are fooling themselves. Your prayer life is directly impacted by your life within the church. If someone says that they have a very close, intimate relationship with God and with Christ, but they have no relationship with his body, we should not believe that profession. They are kidding themselves. They've deceived themselves. One of the blessings of a unified church is that we have intimacy with God. And we have one mind and live in harmony with our brothers and sisters, no matter what they've done to us. That's why Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, said this, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the, before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother. And then come and offer thy gift. If you come to worship and you realize that your brother has something against you, you have sinned against another believer, leave your gift there. Go reconcile with your brother and then come offer your gift. Why can't you worship first? Because you cannot have intimacy with God when you've broken your relationship with your brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't work like that. Our worship is hindered if we are at odds with other believers and when we're not seeking to protect and to guard the unity of the body of Christ. Maybe you get into a situation where the other person or people will not unify with you. You've made every effort to reconcile with them, but they are just not willing. Then your conscience is clear. There are times when you can only do what you can do. It takes at least two parties to reconcile when there's a problem. If someone is unwilling to forgive, if they're unwilling to meet with you, if they're unwilling to resolve an issue between you and them, then that does not hinder your intimacy with God. That hinders theirs. But when there are things that we are holding on to, when we are not seeking to preserve unity, It hinders our intimacy with the Lord. So these are some of the blessings that come from being unified as the church. And there are others. But that is enough to show us the point of how important this is for our walk with Christ. Now, there is another question that is raised in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And the question is, what is the basis of, for the unity of the Spirit. 
What is the basis for the unity of the Spirit? And this is such a vital question because it shows why our unity is so important. We looked at the blessings that come to us through unity. And that gives us an idea of why unity is important for us because of the things God gives us, the blessings that he gives us when we keep unity. But there's a larger question that goes just goes beyond just us, and that is why this unity is important to God. Why is this unity important even if we had never existed? Why does this matter? Why is this God's purpose for his people to be one body like this? We're not going to go into all of it today, but I want to begin and give you a preview and what to think about over the next few weeks. We could answer the question like this. The basis of our unity is the nature and work of the triune God. The basis of our unity is the nature and the work of the triune God. Our unity is not rooted in the fact that we have relationships with one another in the church or have some affinity or good feeling toward one another. Our unity is rooted in the character of God and in the work of God, what God is doing. Our unity is about who God is and what God does. And that's why unity is so important. That's why God has brought together Jews and Gentiles into one body, into one new man, one new creation as the church. It is why there is one gospel, one Savior, and one way of salvation, because what God is doing in the church and his people, this one body that is to keep unity is reflecting himself. God is putting his own glory on display through the church. And our unity then is meant to be something that sends a message about God. Look back at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Now this is what Paul expands on in chapter 4 verses 4 through 6, but back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, he wrote, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Here is God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose is to make his glory known. Where will he make that glory known? In the church. The church is to reflect the manifold or or the multifaceted wisdom of God. As God brings together not only people who are alienated from one another, but are alienated from him. And the most astonishing thing about all of this, all of this is not what happens as we all get along on a human level, but what happens is we all get along as we reflect the glory and the character of God. And here we have this great incentive to maintain unity because the way we treat one another, the way we interact with one another, says something to the world about who God is. But it doesn't just stop with this earthly realm. 
it says something even to the angels and to the demons about who God is. God desires to reveal his character through us and through our unity as the people of God in Christ. That is his point in verses 4 through 6 in chapter 4. And going back to that, that text, notice how Paul spends one verse on each member of the Trinity there. There is the Holy Spirit in verse 4. And there's the Lord Jesus in verse 5. And there is God the Father in verse 6. The church's unity is predicated upon the unity of God, who is not one person but three distinct persons eternally coexisting as one God. And we as the church are many members but one body. In other words, the church is to reflect in an analogous way the unity and the diversity within God. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit, but He is one God. And we are many members, but one body. Now, it's not meant to be a perfect analogy. We are not many members, but one body, in the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three persons and one God. It's just a picture that God is creating of who He is. And The importance of understanding this shows up in the beginning of verse 4. In fact, it shows up in how verse 4 does not begin. If you look at verse 4, notice that there's no connecting word between verses 3 and verses 4. There's no word like and or but or for or because. This is very rare. In fact, in biblical Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, almost every sentence begins with a connective word, and. And if you come to a sentence that does not start with and, it catches your attention. It's a way the author can draw your attention to something. The pattern breaks, and the section without a connecting word stands out to you. And Paul, being Jewish and being immersed in the Old Testament, he writes in a way that is often very similar. You will see and or these connecting words that begin every single sentence that he writes, except here in verse 4 he doesn't do this. And the point is to get your attention. You could almost imagine Paul putting brackets around verses 4 through 6 and saying, can you really focus on that? Some have even said, that this is an early Christian creed that Paul has copied and put into Ephesians. Now, the problem with that is is that every early Christian creed that we know of begins with God the Father and ends with God the Spirit. This one goes in the opposite direction. This one begins with God the Spirit and ends with God the Father. So it's very unlikely that this was an early Christian creed that predated Paul. But that Paul, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, form this for us to show us the significance and basis for our unity in Christ. And he begins to show us the basis of our unity by highlighting for us the one spirit in verse 4. One spirit and what the spirit does. And Lord willing, we'll look at how that forms the basis of our unity and begin to examine that and the character of God.
next time. Today, I want to encourage us to think through the many blessings that have come to God's people when we are unified and when we're diligent to make every effort to preserve that unity. And someone might say, why are we just applying that to the local church? What about the unity that we're supposed to have with all believers throughout the world and all the churches that exist that have the same mind and the same master and the same mission? And that's that's a good question. Our unity does apply to our relationship with believers everywhere. We should be in unity with every true follower of Christ. But the reality is our unity is put to the test not so much by how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Mexico or in Thailand or in Japan or at some other place in the world, but the test is how we relate to our brothers and sisters sitting together in this room. Now, we feel a great deal of unity with our brother Tom Montgomery and his church families in Mexico. And we, we regard them as brothers and sisters who are fighting the same fight that we are fighting, but in a much more difficult situation. And we pray for them and we intercede on their behalf that God would glorify himself through their suffering. And we sense that love that we have for many of these brethren that we have never met, but our unity with them may never be put to the test unless they all immigrate to Broken Arrow and the churches merge. But it is never going to be put to, te- put to the test because we don't live with them. We don't know their sins. We don't know their struggles. We don't know their weaknesses. We don't know the problems in those churches. We don't know the blind spot spots that the leaders in those churches have. And there are problems and there are blind spots because they're led by fallen people who still struggle with sin just as we do. And we could think about this with other churches, with churches all over the world and churches that are pastored pastored by men that we know and we respect. They all have their own problems, their own weaknesses, their own struggles. And the unity we have is not put to the test by brothers and sisters we have never met who never challenge us, who never hurt us, or who never do anything wrong in our presence. We are challenged by the people that we meet with here week by week. And so when we walk, when we talk about the unity of the church, yes, we should have this sense of unity with the global church of Jesus Christ and the true church of Christ throughout the world. But we don't actually have unity with all of them if we don't have unity with all of us. Because this is where that unity is really put to the test. And we are called to protect and to guard and keep that unity. Knowing that there are blessings that come to us when we seek to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And even beyond the blessings that come to us, we understand that our obedience to this command reflects back to a watching cosmos, the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we continue to be in awe that sinners like us, so undeserving, should receive your grace. Lord, your infinite grace, your matchless grace, your marvelous grace, infinitely greater than all of our sin. 
And Lord, that through this grace you have redeemed and forgiven us. You have put us into the body of Christ. You've done that, Lord, for our spiritual good. You've done that to bless us, and we thank you, Lord. Father, when it is difficult to live in unity with our brothers and sisters because of our sinfulness, Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of the blessings that you've promised when we diligently seek to preserve the unity of the body. Lord, let us be mindful in how we treat one another and that it is being observed not only in the church, Lord, but by the watching world, by the principalities and the powers. Lord, may our hearts be consumed with a passion to glorify you. Lord, let us be motivated to keep the unity of the Spirit, to be obedient to your command. Lord, that we may reflect well upon Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the unity that is here. Lord, we thank you for the joy that you've given us. And Lord, we thank thank you that you have used the unity of your body to meet our spiritual and our physical needs. We thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have with one another. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to build unity within this body. And Lord, that we would grow more and more in our fellowship with each other. And that there would be more joy and more spiritual growth And, Lord, more intimacy with you in our lives. Father, we pray and thank you and ask your blessing upon us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.